Guys, is it time? Are we doing this thing? Was anybody here in the first one? Okay, I'm just, I'm just checking. Okay, so we may have a secret goal among you to do different questions than we did the first session. We'll see. Um, well, hey, my name is TJ. I was a high school pastor for like 10 years, and then I got demoted to working with grown-ups, and it's pretty good, but I miss high schoolers. You guys are the best. Um, I'm excited about what we get to talk about today. My, my premise to you is this isn't just entertainment value and ridiculousness. I actually, this is lots of the reasons that I became a Christian when I didn't want to. Um, I believe that God calls us not to a blind faith, but that he, he creates us in his image by giving us an intellect, the ability to reason. And that when we think critically about the world around us, about our nature, about what the Bible says, and we try to consolidate all of it into a comprehensive worldview, in that process, I think he gets glory because we're operating in his image with sweet brains thinking about cool stuff, and uh, I'm blabbing now. Anyway, um, guys, I... This kind of worked the first time, and I love the chaos of it, but I'm not telling you that it, it, it's polished, okay? Uh, I don't know the right way to help you choose the thing. The first, the first one, I just counted to three, and everybody shrieked, and whoever was the loudest, <laughs> that's how we chose. Do you, do you want to try that? Yeah. All right, well, here we go. Let's begin. All right, on the count of three, you just got to shriek your thing. You are choosing your own adventure. Here we go. One, two, three, scream. Are you, are you saying dinosaurs? What are you, what are you saying besides dinosaurs? Okay, raise your hand if you're saying dinosaurs. All right, we got to do it. We got to do it. Guys, feel how dumb that was. I love it. All right, here we go. Uh, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Job chapter 40. Again, we are not going to go longer than goes nine minutes. Here we go. We got through three of these last time. Maybe we can get through more. We don't know. Um, Job chapter 40. Now I want to be clear with you. I am not making the case dinosaurs are a thousand percent in the Bible. And if you don't agree with me, you're wrong. The case that I'm making is for people who claim that dinosaurs are referenced in the Bible, I just want to show you the claim that they make. And then you can decide for yourself as you think critically, that's a bunch of malarkey or ooh. There's something there. Either way, it's fascinating, and we're using our brains to the glory of God. Okay, so when you get to Job chapter 40, please say, yay, yeah, yay. Yeah. Oh, okay, you guys are ready. All right, let me give you a couple nerd facts that makes this super fascinating before we jump in, okay? Um, the book of Job was written somewhere between 700 to 300 B.C., okay? Do you have any idea when the methodology, the scientific framework for uh, archaeology became a legitimate thing? Cool, I'll tell you. Uh, around the 16th century, people were finding dinosaur bones and they recorded it, but they didn't know how to classify them. They didn't know what animals they were. They would find bones and record accounts of them going like, it's a huge human leg bone. We're finding dead giants in the ground. And so it wasn't until 1819 that someone starts to try to systematically piece these bones together. And starting in, 15, in 1819 through 1924, the first dinosaur is classified and they go, whoa, look at the skeleton. It looks reptilian. It's ginormous. All these bones are from one thing. Here's why that's amazing, because if we're, as people, not able to make sense of what these huge bones are that we're finding in the ground until 1824, and if dinosaurs are in the Bible written somewhere around 700 to 300 B.C., 
That means the Bible is talking about something 2,400 years before we can even perceive it. That is, that's like super awesome dino prophecy. You know what I mean? So this stuff is interesting. All right, are you asleep? Oh, good, just checking. Okay, here we go. All right, well, let's read chapter 40 of Job, verse 15. Look at the behemoth. First point, that just sounds like a big thing, okay? Which I made along with you and which feeds on grass like an ox. What kind of animal is this so far? Everybody say herbivore. It eats plants. It likes salad, okay? And you're like, oh, it's like me. What strength has he in his loins? Okay, his legs are powerful. What power in the muscles of his belly? Verse 17, his tail sways like a cedar. And this, it, this is where I get a little bit rude, okay? Because there are renowned theologians, Bible commentaries, feel like who read these passages and they're like, hmm, by my superior powers of inference and inductive reasoning, I believe this animal is a crocodile. What? I believe this animal is a hippopotamus. What did we just say about this thing's tail? It's like the size of a cedar. Guys, we're in Hume Lake, in the great sequoias. Like, how, how tall is a cedar? That's right. Scientifically speaking, it's 1,000 bajillion quadrillion feet tall. How wide is a cedar? That's right. Again, scientifically speaking, super duper wide, right? Think about a hippopotamus tail. It's like this little pfft, nothing. How are you even, are you even using your brain? You know what I'm saying? Some people think the animal in this thing is an elephant. Okay, it has powerful legs, but again, it has this tiny little baby tail. Come on, you ding dong, pay attention. His tail sways like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are close-knit. His bones are tubes of bronze. His lips, lips. Uh, his limbs are like rods of iron, okay? Think about this. If I had a cute little baby bird in my hands, and it went like this, <laughs> it would crush because bird bones are light, they're hollow, they're frail, they're tiny, right? That's not what we're getting described here. These bones are so massive, they're tubes of bronze, they're thick, they're dense, they're part of his strength. Huge tail, eats grass, massive bones. I like this verse, verse 19. He ranks first among the works of God, yet his maker can approach him with his sword. God, for Hebrew writing back then, first was like a, a creative narrative way to refer to something that was huge, giant, biggest, right? Even in their patriarchal society, first, the firstborn was the one who was the most important or the one who's going to receive the inheritance when, when dad passed away, right? And whether you agree with that or not, it's just how the society was set up. And the thing that makes this matter in terms of potential dinosaurs in the Bible is if you apply those things to this verse, it means we're describing a vegetarian thing with a huge tail, with massive bones, with strong legs, and it's First, it's the biggest in all things of God's kingdom. Fascinating. Verse 20, the hills bring him their produce and all the wild animals play nearby. Under the lotus plants, he lies. Hidden among, them the, hidden among the reeds in the marsh, the lotuses conceal him in their shadows. The poplars by the streams surround him. When the river rages, he is not alarmed. Now, this is just me, again, using my nerd ADD brain, but I hear that and I go, an animal who's big and massive, standing in a giant raging river and not just tipped over, probably has a low center of gravity, you know? All his weight is just down low, and I don't know. Can I, just, can, I, can I show you a picture of what I think maybe these dinosaurs look like? Let's do the uh, dino chart one. Boom, there you go. Here's what's fascinating about this, you guys. When I was a little kid, uh, or I'm sorry, when I was in high school, uh, archaeologists were classifying dinosaurs, and they're like, Brachiosaurus and Brontosaurus. What do they look like? 
They all look like this, but they had boring names. Do you know that now scientists are classifying th these dinosaurs with incredible names like Dreadnoughtus? There's a subgroup of dinosaurs that are shaped like this called the Titanosaurs. What? They're finding bones like this in Argentina, and they're calling them the Argentinosaurus. Like, they have the coolest names ever. And the point is, who knows of them which one is like, this one's three inches taller than that one. But the fascinating thing is, they're all the same shape. They're all the same size. And I would argue, they line up pretty accurately to this, at least more than a stinking hippopotamus. Would you agree? Mm, fascinating. Let me show you some random pictures. Let's go to the guy laying next to the bone. Look at that. That's a leg bone of one of these bad babies. Let's go to the other one. Look at that. That's the vertebrae of a tail of one of these bad babies. It says 24.7 like meters long. That's like 100 bajillion feet. You know what I'm saying, right? There is a case to be made for, Bible, for dinosaurs in the Bible, which means tonight you should sing a little bit louder in worship because maybe he talks about dinosaurs in the Bible to his glory. Ah, that's it. That's it. That's all we're talking about dinosaurs. Any questions? Great. No room for questions. Let's do the next one. Okay. Okay. Guys, we did that in eight minutes. This is, this is like three semesters of college courses, and it was very thorough. Here we go. All right. Uh, <laughs> we're going to try a different way to do this, okay? Everyone raise your right hand. Now, when I count to three, you're going to point to the person who's going to represent you and get to pick the next thing that we do, okay? One, two, three, point! You now have ten seconds to convince them of which thing to shriek to me so that we can choose our next adventure. Ten seconds, ready, go! Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Silence! Okay, only the people who were picked shriek. This probably isn't going to work. One, two, three, shriek! I'm just going to call on the loudest person. You! Yeah! What are you saying? Origin of man? Is that what we're doing? Wait, like origin of man alternatives? Ooh, they didn't do this in the last one. Fascinating. All right, in order to inspire us, we need a flute solo. All right, now we can begin. I told you this was an ADD thing, guys. Woo, all right. Here we go. Let me turn to my uh, origin of man alternatives. I bet we can do this one <laughs> in four minutes. Okay, the reason we talk about origin of man alternatives is because, <coughs> that's not why, there's a propensity for Christians, it wasn't just about everybody, to read the creation account in Genesis 1-1 and go, all right, I get it, Bible. You can even do maybe some of the things we've been doing this week and prove to you that the Bible is true, that it's a source of truth. And yet, if you're honest, Genesis 1-1 still feels kind of far-fetched, right? Wait, like, so God spoke, logos, he spoke things into existence? Like, what did that look like? He says, let there be light, and just light just shoot out of his mouth. You know, like, how, my brain isn't wrapping around that. And so, in order to make sense of where we came from, we look for other options. And I would say this is just natural, but, but what I want to do to maybe ground you in the Bible is show you that the alternatives of people who hate God, who are vehement atheists, are so preponderously much more ridiculous than what we find in the Bible that uh, the alternatives bring you back to God. Here we go. All right. Is anybody familiar with Richard Dawkins? Richard Dawkins wrote a book called God Delusion. Uh, maybe don't read it because it will severely check your faith if you are not 
constantly reading apologetic stuff, but he hates the God of the Bible. He hates any idea of a divine creator. He's a devout atheist, and today he's one of the leading thinkers uh, in atheistic, naturalistic biology, right? And so what's fascinating to me about evolution is that it describes the process by which species move and macroevolution and, and uh, change from one species to the other, right? But specifically in Darwin's book, Origin of Species, he's not talking... He's not really even spending any time talking about the origin. Okay, well, when pressed, where did all this stuff come from? We would say the, the creator God, from nothing, he was the only thing that existed, brought everything into existence in his full and total sovereignty. Well, what does Richard Dawkins say when pressed with the question, okay, yeah, 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 we get it, we get the process, but where did everything come from? Can I tell you? No? Okay, let's be done. Let's just be done. All right. Richard Dawkins, when pressed, and I'm paraphrasing, he basically said, I believe, instead of a God of the universe, the alien came to life, to earth, and dropped the building block seeds of life, which became multicellular organisms, which became fish with legs, which became a monkey, which became a you. What? But, it, but it's not just that guy. And listen, this guy's not just out on the periphery. There's another guy who's a current professor right now at, at uh, Florida State University. His name is Michael Ruse. He's a professor of the philosophy of biology, and he is currently writing and revising college-level textbooks. And this guy, when asked the question, where do you think all life came from, he said this phrase, and this sounds a little bit smarter. He said, I believe that inorganic crystalline structures piggybacked on other inorganic crystalline structures, which became the first living organic molecule. And you might hear that and go, oh my goodness, what a fancy smart professor. But when you start thinking about what is an inorganic crystalline structure, inorganic means not alive. A crystalline structure, can I give you an example, is table salt. What he's saying is, I believe all life, including me, the value, the purpose, everything about me and the entire animal kingdom, we can all trace our origin back to a piece of table salt going, hey, buddy, hop on. <laughs> and then they've transformed together like when the Power Rangers get together and they became an organic molecule. What? That takes more faith than it does to be a Christian, for crying out loud. In fact, there are things about our origin account that completely trump these other options. Like if you're familiar with C.S. Lewis, he gave this amazing a uh, way to understand the, the biblical idea of God, that he's Alpha and Omega, that he's the beginning and the end, that he existed not just before us, but basically before time began. And we hear that and we go, preponderous. But what C.S. Lewis did is he basically took a piece of paper like this, and he said, well, it's not preponderous if you think about how, how big God is. Hmm, I have to choose which color the most. Green. Green. All right, I hear you. Okay. This is what C.S. Lewis said. Think about our perspective. You and I are God. We, oh, this is great, we're God, okay? And this paper is the canvas upon which we are about to create. And the moment we create, ba-boom, here you go, Genesis 1, time comes into existence, right? This is why God can be eternal and all-knowing, all-seeing, everything, right? And so you and I, it's like we're 2D down here, moving along this plane. Time is always moving forward. Can you see this terribly drawn arrow? We can't go backwards. We're, the only thing we're aware of is what's on this one little point. And we remember what's back here. We can't know what's up here, but it's constantly moving forward. This is time. It actually logically checks out that if God is that big, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, that if he created everything 
and set it on this two-dimensional timeline, then when he looks at it, he can see all things past, all things present, all things future. It actually legitimates the qualities and characters of him that he is omniscient, all-knowing, right? If he can do this, then he's also all-powerful. This, this logically checks out where these other options of something, of nothingness, there's just a void, there's absolute nothing, and then all of a sudden you have an explosion, like that literally breaks the second law of thermodynamics. You can't have something come from nothing, right? For every action, there's an equal blah, 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 science stuff. You know what I'm saying. Do you get, what, do you get that? Yeah. Wow, you guys are so sleepy. We're ready for lunch. Okay, that's it. That's what we got. Did we just do two of these in 16 minutes? Whoa, doggy. Okay. Let's see if there's anything else in that one. Nope, that's it. Um, okay. <laughs> Did that work last time? No, you know what we're going to do? We're just going to make this so arbitrary, and uh, I'm just going to do the one of the person who screams the loudest. But first, we need to do an ADD flute solo. All right, let's begin. Here we go. We have reset our brains through the gift of music. Here we go. Whoever's the loudest, one, two, three, go. Guys, you are a choir of angels. Can I just tell you, from my perspective, <laughs> I'm watching youth pastors and counselors go like this. <laughs> I heard evolution. Is that what we're doing? <laughs> Boom, shakalaka. Okay, it looks like we're doing evolution and God and stuff. Here we go. Let me turn to my evolution and God and stuff page. Oh, we're on it. All right. Here we go. Center ADD thoughts. Here we go. All right. Uh, I want to show you some artwork. Here we go. I drew this in Microsoft Paint. This? Yes, thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. This, my friends, is called the Bombardier Beetle. And this beetle has a flamethrower attached to its buttocks in real life. Have you heard of this? Let's show the picture of the smoke coming out of its rear end. Okay, there you go. This thing has two glands, each with a chemical in it. And when the chemicals combine outside its body in its little spout thingy, it causes a chemical reaction at 220 plus degrees, which is higher than the boiling temperature of water. This little thing is a turret that it can rotate 360 degrees and just boom. But it doesn't shoot single shots, okay? This thing can shoot pulses of up to 500 pulses a second. Just go, 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 Okay? It's incredible. It's incredible. Let's go to the frog picture. This is a video you can watch on YouTube of a frog trying to eat a bombardier beetle. The bombardier beetle goes inside this beautiful frog's stomach. The, <laughs> the bombardier beetle unleashes absolute terror and violence inside its guts. Boom, 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 boom. The frog's organs burn. He spits out the beetle, and the beetle goes on to live another life. And you're like, Yes, that's awesome. What does this have to do with evolution? Well, uh, and again, you guys, I, I, I want to say this. There are certain things for us as Christians that are primary issues, which means you have to believe these to have a saving faith to be a Christian. There are other things that are secondary issues that we conjecture about, that we, we can't say, like, we're 100% confident this is how it works, because it's not black and white in the Bible, right? But I think it's worth, it's intriguing, it's interesting, and it's worthwhile to apply our brains to this. So maybe I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong. I just want to generate a curiosity and an awe in you as you use your brains critically to the glory of God. So the problem that this presents to evolution 
is a term called irreducible complexity. Can we, there's a picture of a beetle that has like a diagram on its buttocks. Yeah, there we go. So there's the two glands, right? And the, the reason this presents a problem is because the idea is if, if all of the phylum, the species, all these cool science words that we know came into existence by a gradual progression of genetic permutations over time, right, that's the premise of evolution, and that those genetic permutations were advantageous generation after generation, causing change that added genetic information to that animal until it changed within a species, microevolution, until ultimately it changed beyond its species, macroevolution. Then you would not have things like this. Because these two glands, think about as this beetle develops generation after generation, what if it has to develop the one organ? Well, that doesn't make sense. It's living from generation to generation with just one chemical that doesn't do anything, and now it's just squirting. Like, one of these chemicals is close to hydrogen peroxide. He's just squirting, like, something that's going to clean a frog at it, and it just dies. Like, that animal won't go on to live anymore, right, if natural selection is a thing. Or maybe the linings of these two, uh, the membranes of these two glands aren't thick enough. And so the animal has both chemicals, but they don't react outside of its body. They react inside of its body, and it just <laughs> ceases to exist. So the problem for evolution with this guy is those two organs right there, they can't be the result of a progressive thing gradually over time that develops this. Those had to be created at once. Otherwise, the beetle would explode all the time and just be extinct. You get what I'm saying? That's, that's the thesis for this dude, okay? Um, should we keep going? Is there more? Okay, there's more. Good. All right. Do you want to talk about uh, dating techniques? And by this, I don't mean pickup lines. Okay. Here's a reason this is fascinating to me in the context of our conversation about evolution, okay? When I was a student, uh, I would go to school and I would get told things about morality, Right? Like, oh, here's how you live, here's good choices, and it, and it felt like uh, philosophy, maybe, right? Worldview stuff. And then when I would go to school, did I say school before? Sorry, when I would go to church, that's what I would get, right? And then when I would go to school, I would get teachers with degrees going, this is fact, you can't dispute it, this is fact, you can't dispute it. And I was taught, basically, as I start to reflect on it, that what I learned at church was just myth. It was kind of fairy tale. It was about life in general and principles, but school is where... Fact and truth and objectivity happened. This was subjective. This was objective. But what I've learned over time is that these aren't in separate categories, separate worlds. You have two competing worldviews, right? In fact, science isn't just, well, science in its true form is just a methodology. It's a way of understanding the world through measuring and hypotheses and that kind of thing. But most of the time what we interact with that's called science isn't science. It's actually its own worldview that, that uh, theologians refer to as scientism or naturalism. This idea that the only things that exist are what you can see, taste, touch, smell. Only the things you can perceive and measure are what exist. But hear, hear the irony of that statement. The truth that I just claimed cannot be empirically proven. It cannot be naturalistically perceived. So the whole idea implodes in on itself. It's, it's paradoxically ironic. It doesn't work. There's something more. So we have these two worldviews that are competing against each other. Um, and I don't want this to be, well, this is one of the problems that I had for me in high school. I believe this one was bulletproof and church was wiggly. Two competing worldviews. And so my goal isn't to say there's no way evolution is true. My goal is to simply say maybe this thing that's been presented to you as concrete has a little bit of wiggle room in it. You need to think critically about this thing that people said, you don't need to think critically. It's been proven. It's done. Open and shut case. So here we go. Dating techniques. Uh, what's up, girl? Just kidding. Radio <laughs> Someone was like, creeper. All right. 
radiometric carbon dating. Are you familiar with this? Okay, it's a way of, of dating things that we find in the fossil record. It's dating organic material, and the actual process is dating the half-life or the rate of decay of carbon. Okay? And I remember going, oh, cool, so they just pick up a thing and they date it. So organic material, dinosaur bone, anything with DNA, anything that was alive, they can figure out how old it is. Fantastic. The problem is this dating system only goes back 50,000 years. So something else is happening when they find a fossil of a dinosaur, this thing, and they go, it's 4.5 million bajillion quadrillion years old. They're not dating the actual thing itself. This, this was really interesting to me. They're typically using something else, another predominant dating technique, uh, which is called potassium argon dating. Have you ever heard of this? So now they're, they're, they're measuring the half-life of something else, potassium, right, with the big K, and then the argon A, and the little R. And what they're dating now is the relative strata around the thing they're interested in. It's proprietarily used to date volcanic material. So if you can picture the layers in the dirt, right, when you go to Sedona, and there's all those different colored layers, that's called strata. And in those strata, like a layer cake, you find a dinosaur bone. Well, they know they can only go back 50,000 years, so they can't date the thing. They have to use potassium argon dating, and they date the dirt next to it, which, fine, maybe that works. That was never explained to me. But what if you have an earthquake, and the strata shifted? What if you have a, real, what if you have a gopher with ADD like me, and he's just like, woo, digging that light? What if that, that dirt around it gets disrupted, and now the thing that you're dating, because it's not the thing itself, doesn't give you an accurate read? God, th there's our, there are entire forests that they have used dating techniques and gone, this is, there was a volcano, it petrified these trees, this is five million years old. And then they would go back and date it later and realize, this is 2,000 years old. There's more subjectivity, margin, wiggle room, speculation. We're, we're dating something that no one was there when it happened. So it's all thesis, right? So if for you, you've been one of those students where you're like, what? How old is the earth? Wait, what? Evolution? There's no way my God can be real. I just want to hear you. There's room for you to think critically. There are answers for you to find on your own. There are opinions for you to shape for yourself. Um, it's not one and done. The other interesting thing about dating techniques is they assume a constant. They assume that atmospheric pressure is the same all the time. And yet from some of those same voices, we hear that there's a hole in the ozone layer. Or uh, there's more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere today. Or Right? These things aren't constant. They're a variable, and they're going to change the rate of decay. And so the whole, all right, I'm losing you. This is getting boring. Anyway, interesting. Um, but there's a lot there, and it's worth nerding out on, okay? Uh, let me give you one more thing in our evolution stuff. This one does tie back to the Bible, and I like it. Okay, let's go to the uh, Precambrian explosion thing. Have you guys heard of the Precambrian explosion? Yes? Okay, so if you've heard of like the eras and dating, right, like Triassic, Jurassic, Cretaceous, well before all those we had Precambrian, Cambrian, Ordovician. So the idea is that in the archaeological record, if we use their dating technique, something like 500 plus million years ago is where we see an explosion of organic material, of life. And, and the, the contrast that we see up here is that if evolution were the, the way that we could make sense of what we find in the archaeological record, what we should see is a gradual increase of animal complexity, of species, of, of different kinds of animals over time. But the top one is not what we find in the archaeological record. What we actually find is the bottom one. That is referred to as, some, as an event that happened, they, again, they would say over 500 million years ago, uh, where life explodes onto the scene. And the fascinating thing about it is that the order and age of things that they're finding actually lines up with the order of things in the creation account, the order in which God created, right? Plants, 
first, I think it's like day five, it's uh, birds and fish, and then after that, it's mammals and land-dwelling stuff. Like, that's the order that happens, and it's not gradual slowly over time. It's all at once. Just sitting there in the dirt, this is, this is what they find. It's fascinating. So, anyway, I think we have three more minutes. Do you want to do another thing? Yeah. Oh, shriek it out. Speed round. Here we go. What are we doing? Oh, I'm sorry. What? Okay, here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're going to do. The things I'm hearing are Adam and Eve or the problem of evil. Raise your hand if you want Adam and Eve. Okay, hands down. Raise your hand if you want the problem of evil. Adam and Eve wins, you guys. Adam and Eve. Hey, listen, if, if we didn't get to one of the questions that you wanted to do, I know some of you guys stayed in from the first session, and we did two of the ones that you did last time. Um, if you want to stay, stay a nerd after, I'm not going to pretend like I have all the answers, but stuff I've nerded out on, I would love to share with you, okay? Did we say Adam and Eve? Okay, cool. We're going to do a little bit more archaeology, and this is going to indirectly bring us to the legitimacy, wow, weird words, the legitimacy of Adam and Eve. Here's why this matters, okay? I believe, and what you're hearing is a bias, I want you to hear it not so that I can persuade you, again, but so you can think critically and make your own decision. The bias you get from me is I believe you have to believe Adam and Eve are literal people like uniquely created in a creation event by God, separate from the animal kingdom, just like it says literally in Genesis, that God breathed his breath of life into their nostrils. And the reason that's so important is because of the consequences of ideas. If Adam and Eve are true people, the first people, then this is how we understand that we're created in the image of God, right? It's where we get the explanation for our creative tendencies, for our capabilities, right? God gives them, in Genesis, their purpose. He says, I want you to go, to have dominion over the earth, subdue it, multiply. He gives them their purpose. Because they're created in his image, they also have their value. Their value is attached to God because they're uniquely created, separated out from the rest of the animals. Because he breathes his life into them, this is also where some theologians associate, it's where we get the soul, right? The trichotomy or the dichotomy of people where you have body, spirit, soul, they would say, as God breathed into people and not animals, this is why animals don't have a soul, the ability to spiritually connect with God, but we do. We're separate. We're different. But if Adam and Eve are simply an allegory, a metaphor, a symbol, then all this becomes blurry. If we try to incorporate something like evolution, then Adam and Eve are not the first distinct people. They have bipedal hominid ancestors, right? They're somehow linked to monkeys. And now where are we deriving their value, their purpose, their spirit, all of these things kind of go away. Worse, if Adam and Eve aren't real, Adam and Eve is where so much of our theology comes from. In Genesis 3, when the fall of man happens and they bring sin into the world through their own free will, that's how we understand important doctrines like the doctrine of inherent sin, the doctrine of total depravity. It's why in you and me, in our experience, when we feel trapped by our sin, we want to do good, and yet we keep on sinning, we make sense of that from Adam and Eve being real. Our need for a savior comes from the fallen world that comes from two real people sinning and bringing the rest of us as their ancestors into sin also. In fact, Jesus references in Mark, uh, let's see, what is it? Mark chapter 10, verse 6, he refers to Adam and Eve. So if Adam and Eve aren't real people, he's wrong. Paul will mention multiple times Adam and Eve. There's a verse uh, in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. It says this, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, who's that man? Adam. And death through sin, 
and in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. So much of how we understand ourselves is through the lens, not just of Scripture, not just of Genesis, but Adam and Eve being true, literally, the first people created. And you're like, okay, I didn't want theology, I wanted archaeology. Well, let's do it. Let's go to Laish. Okay? Laish, this is a, a picture of a place that used to bring the Bible into disrepute. You don't have to turn there. Just Again, we're going speed round. We knew that. But uh, Genesis 14, verse 14. It says, when Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan, this place called Dan. People would look at the Bible and go, the Bible's dumb, inaccurate. Dan didn't exist, this town, until hundreds of years after Abraham was alive. Dan was the tribe of Dan, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, and they conquered this ancient place called Laish. Laish was the town that was around when Abraham was there. So the Bible's saying, oh, Abram went to this place that didn't exist until hundreds of years after him. Its timeline's all wrong. The Bible's inaccurate. But then, through archaeology, we found this place. This is Laish, like a hundred yards away from the town of Dan. So Laish was there, and then Dan conquered it and built their town. The Bible was completely proven accurate. You're like, that has nothing to do with Adam and Eve. It kind of does. Because what I just told you is that we find relics in the ground that substantiate Something that happened in Genesis 14. So you have to ask the question, okay, you, like you can't deny Genesis 14 is true. We have history. It really happened. The dates check out. The people check out. The places check out. Genesis 14 is real. So if you want Adam and Eve to be make-believe, besides the theolo theological problems, you now have to decide where do you draw the line. Is Genesis 14 real, but Genesis 13 is not? Well, that's too close. Genesis 13 is probably real. Genesis Nine is not real. Like, the fact that we have archaeology that substantiates moments in Genesis lends itself to the understanding that this amazing thing, the creator God of the universe, uniquely, lovingly, distinctly created mankind, starting with Adam and Eve, for his glory in relationship with us. Our theology drives from there, and logically, with our critical thinking brains, it checks out. And I think that's pretty cool. So sing louder tonight in worship because God deserves your glory. Let me pray for you. God, we love you. We thank you for today. We thank you for giving us brains that are fun to use. And God, as, as we think critically, I, I pray that you would give every student in here an awe for your word. An awe for the world around us. God, as we understand creation, that it would just give us a reverence and a respect for you as the creator. God, we love you and give you this week. In Christ's name, everybody said Amen. You. I don't know what's going on in here. If we get kicked out, that's okay. But if you have questions or want to talk about nerd stuff, let me know.